Society builders paved the way to a better world, to a better day. A united approach to building a new society. Join a conversation for social transformation. Society builders. Ooh. Society builders with your host, Dwayne Veron. Welcome to another exciting episode of Society Builders. And thanks for joining the conversation for social transformation. And welcome to the start of our third season of Society Builders. I mean, we have been learning so much together. So thank you for being a part of that journey. Today, we continue our exploration of the science of depolarization and explore strategies to help bring antagonistic groups closer together, strategies to reverse the rampant and accelerating polarization that is taking over our planet. And I'm thrilled to have as my guest today, Andrea Bartoli, who is both a scholar and who serves as the president of the Santa Gidio Foundation for Peace and Dialogue, which is a global Catholic association championing world peace. Now, Andrea has an amazing academic career, having served as the founding director of Columbia University's Center for International Conflict Resolution, also as the former dean of the School of Diplomacy and International Relations at Seton Hall University, and as the former dean of the School of Conflict Analysis and Resolution at George Mason University. I mean, these are serious academic credentials. And beyond his academic work and his work with Santa Gidio, he also currently serves as an executive advisor of the Sokka Institute for Global Solutions. He's a member of the steering group of the Global Action Against Mass Atrocity Crimes and the Genocide Prevention Advisory Network. And in his role at Santa Gidio, he's been directly involved in numerous successful peacekeeping diplomatic initiatives around the world including in Mozambique, Guatemala, Algeria, Kosovo, Burundi, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Casamance, Senegal, the Central African Republic, and South Sudan. I mean, Andrea has absolutely incredible pedigree, both in academic and diplomatic circles, bringing peace to truly desperate people. And we're going to learn a lot from Andrea today. We're going to learn from the lessons he's been learning across this incredible career with all these amazing experiences. So, Andrea, welcome to Society Builders. Thank you. I'm so excited. You have such an amazing career, you know, across two very different dimensions as an academic, of course, but you're also a diplomat. <laughs> and, and the diplomacy work that you've done is so interesting. And so really, I'd like to start our story there. I'd like to take you back in time to what was probably the first work that you were really doing in that peacemaking domain, which was your time back in Mozambique. So let's go on a little bit of a journey and, and tell us the story about how you got started in this whole peacemaking sphere. Very good. Thank you. This is a wonderful opportunity. And Thank you also to the opportunity to connect with the Baha'i community. I've heard so much about the Baha'i community and my connection is mainly through the UN office, so Bani Dugal and this connection. So there is a 
diplomatic dimension there that maybe <laughs> but the important element about my experience is that it's truly deeply, deeply intertwined with the community of Saint Egidia. So I wouldn't absolutely claim any relevant role on the Mozambique story. You know, I was really a marginal player in something that actually the person that is now the Cardinal of Bologna, Matteo Zuppi, who is a member of the Sant'Egidio even before me, and now he's a Cardinal and he was asked by Pope Francis to go to Kiev and Moscow to try to facilitate a dialogue on peace between Ukraine and Russia, who was also involved in Mozambique. He was the one that really created the conditions for peace to come to that country. My role was simply more internal to the community in support to that effort. But what was interesting about that story actually is the connection with Peter Coleman that I think was already in the series, who welcomed me in the United States when I came in 92 to follow on the peace process in Mozambique, because it was a significant involvement of the United Nations and it was negotiating with the United Nations their involvement in the post-agreement period. And I came here as, as an immigrant, as somebody that actually didn't speak uh, English. I was speaking French at the UN. I was uh, connecting in different ways. And Peter was welcoming me as somebody what, that would not only listen, but in a way help this process of self-reflection. Why are you doing what you're doing? How you're doing what you're doing? What is the meaning of what you're doing? And so on and so forth. So it, it started a collaboration of decades around this very important passage of reflecting on what you're doing, on the importance of doing something, recognizing that there is a good intention behind what you're doing, but also evaluating the result and also spending time in understanding what is really happening when something good is happening. So in this sense, I really want to stress this distinction between my own role and what the community of Sant'Egidio was able to do. Because Sant'Egidio, in many ways, is a very interesting expression of the Catholic Church after Vatican II. I don't know how familiar you are with the Catholic Church and the changes that it went through, but in the 60s, a very old Pope, John XXIII, had this vision, this invitation to the Catholic Church to gather in a a council, all bishops from all over the world came to Rome. And the church was transformed deeply uh, because it became a church that was much more seeking what unites rather than what divides, much more connected to peace and commitment to justice, and significantly much more ecumenical. Christianity has been divided for centuries, Orthodox and Catholic, Protestant and Catholic, and so on and so forth, Evangelical, Baptist, and so many different expressions of Christianity. But for the Catholic Church, the Vatican II is the moment in which the Church becomes truly, or returned to be, truly ecumenical. And I'm sure that this kind of reasoning may resonate with the Baha'i approach. So it's, yeah, it's an absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> important shape for the Catholic Church. So in order to understand Sant'Egidio, it's important to understand Sant'Egidio as an expression of post-Vatican II Catholic Church. In this sense, 
by story is a story of discovery. What does it mean to be something that never existed before? How can you be something that is rooted somewhere? Clearly Catholic, we are clearly proud of a tradition that goes back to Jesus and has a very clear sequence of people that have this connection to him. But how can you take 2,000 years of history and then engage in a project that is new? So Strategio started as a small group of high school students in 1968 by the initiative of Andrea Riccardi. And I joined in 1970, two years later. And when wow. I joined, we, wow. we were 30 kids. You know, we, I was in high school and, and now we are you know, several hundred thousand around the world. We are present in 70 countries. In this sense, there is a resonance with the Baha'i experience of growing, you know, of starting very small and then growing significantly around the world. And very similar, these patterns of being rooted, you know, communities that are in different countries and live this life of generosity. We like to say, nobody's so poor that cannot help another. And uh, is a logic that is countered to a lot of money-centered reasoning of the West, where you, you need to have the money to do anything. Money is really the driver of everything. Well, Sartegidio, not at all. You know, the, the driver is really the personal, spiritual, historical commitment of somebody that is awakened to the possibility that even if you are very poor, even if you are in a prison, even if you are confined in a nursing home, you can actually do something good for others. So my role in Mozambique, my role in, in that particular peace process was of support, the way of helping those that were really doing the peace process, Matteo, Andrea, Ivan Gonzalez, that was this bishop that invited us to play that role. And in that sense, I continued in my academic career you know, because I really felt that this role of supporting, this role of encouraging others to be who they can be, this role of helping others to be better, helping others who they want to be was, was a good fit for me, was a good way for me to become who I was supposed to be and, and all that. So. Mozambique is a wonderful moment, but it's also the beginning in many ways. It's the beginning of uh, something that unfolded. It's also the beginning for the country itself. Mozambique was divided then. It had a very difficult story because it was a colonial country of uh, Portugal for hundreds of years. And the result of that colonization was that uh, there was a military resistance against the Portuguese. And in 1975, the Portuguese military decided to get rid of their colonies and stop fighting colonial wars. So Mozambique became like Angola, like Hawaii, the independence suddenly. And the Vatican that had a century-old rule that they could only have white Portuguese bishop in the colonies controlled by Portugal could apply the Vatican to this position that they could have black native local bishops. So a friend of ours that was a priest in Rome as an exiled priest became Bishop of Beira, the second largest city of the country. It had terrible experiences because he was put to jail. He couldn't go to see the communities because this was a Marxist-Leninist government 
that was significantly anti-religious, especially anti-Catholic because the Catholics were connected to the Portuguese and the former colonial powers and so. So when it came to Rome, the Catholic have a, a rule, every bishop on earth must come to see the Pope personally every five years. It's called visit at limina, at limina apostolorum. And so the guy comes to Rome a couple of years after becoming bishop and tells us the story, tells us the story that he cannot go to celebrate mass and visit the communities. And they had a lot of people prison and so on. And Andrea, the founder of the community, started responding to this suffering, saying, well, we want to help you. Let, let's see what we can do to help. And what was curious was that in Italy, you had the largest communist party outside the Soviet Union. 30% of Italians after 1945, Italy became one country. And so always voted for a communist party. So in Rome, we were going to high school, everybody, public high schools and so on. You need to imagine at least a third, if not more, were communists. It was like going to taking the bus together, you know. So for an American audience, it's very difficult to understand. But in Italy, it was just normal. Catholics. You understood. You understood the discourse. You understood the language. You could kind of communicate with their, with yeah, the... We were also playing together, listening to the same music, going to the same parties and so on and so forth. So what Andrea had the genius of thinking that in order to help a new bishop recently appointed to the second largest city, Mozambique, we could speak with our friends in Italian high school whose parents were communists because the Communist Party had significant economic interest in Mozambique and they could help invite the government of Mozambique to be less contentious against the Catholic community. Amazing, amazing. What a, what a great strategy. <laughs> it was a leap, right? You know, sometimes you need to, to, to leap into, into something and the strategy actually worked. It worked because Italian communists were Italian first. Was completely clear that that it was it was it made no sense you know, to be in Mozambique and be anti-spiritual, anti-religious. Everybody was spiritual in one way or the other. Why do you want to be contentious against your own people? You know, it was much better to be open, to be respectful, and so on and so forth. And of course, it was also an economic interest because the Communist Party had significant economic interest in Mozambique through the cooperatives. And that boy had a little bit of a leverage with the Mozambique party. And they were able to start this conversation with Santa Gidio on religious freedom. So the first 10 years in Mozambique were really trying to help a friend to be as spiritual and Catholic and religious as he wanted to be with his own community. It was really just a gift of being freer together as a way for Mozambique to become a state that was less concerned about controlling and more trustful that being open to spiritual dimensions was not that bad after all. While this was happening, there was a military confrontation by Renan Molde. 
active military group that was contending the control of the government, and there was an active civil war. So this bishop, we engaged for 10 years on religious freedom, became clearly the point of reference for both. He, he was able to speak with one and the other. And the, the bridge. Beautiful... He became this bridge between this, these conflicting exactly. parties. Exactly. And I remember vividly the day when we were together in Rome and we were strategizing what could we do and what should be done and so on. So we said to Jaime, you know, the name of this guy, Jaime Gonzalez, and we said, I think you need to go to speak with Renemo. You need to go and speak with them. And he looked at us as we were asking him to go to the moon. You know what I mean? It, this was a very travel. <laughs> this was not city to do. This was not something that you would take a train and go to Philadelphia. You know, this was serious betraying the government side, doing something secret, and then it's on sport. It needed to be organized through South African secret service that at that time was apartheid South Africa, not, not South Africa today. You know, this was a very different moment. And so. But the guy accepted to do it, and the result was amazing. It was amazing because when Jaime told the story, was a remarkable story because, as I said, you know, he was really reluctant to do it. And they invited him into a small plane. And he said that for two hours, they were actually moving away from Mozambique. So he, th he said, they're going to throw me in, in, the, in the sea and nobody will ever know that I ever existed. But they were just only waiting for the night to come so that they could come back to Mozambique secretly and land in this place where the strip for the airplane was signaled with torches. And as soon as the airplane landed, all the torches were stripped. And so there was no trace of this landing, no, no trace on the... The guy gets out of the airplane and is welcomed by Jokama, this, this leader of the opposition. And the two realized that they start to speak Dao. And Dao is a local language, not Portuguese, not the language of the colonial, but the language of the, the people of that particular region. So you can imagine that the conversation is much more fluent and much more open to trust, much more relaxed, much more open to consideration. So Jaime, together with Matteo Zuppi, this, this person that I mentioned now is negotiating in Ukraine, Moscow, were able to start this conversation with the government side and the Renamo side, exploring options of what could happen. And then they came with two delegations to Rome for two years and a half. And after that, in 92, the agreement was signed. And it was a tremendously important agreement because it brought the country together. Mozambique was finally one, had a unified government, they had a unified army, they had the capacity to bring together other countries. So for Sant'Egidio was a beautiful way to grow into becoming these agents of peace. But it's interesting that this is in 92, right? So the, 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 the meeting in Rome happened in 1990, but this shift from 
the religious freedom work that we were doing since the 80s you know, to, to the 90s, you know, those 10 years that I was mentioning before. The shift actually towards peace happened after the prayer that Pope John Paul II did in Assisi in 86, where he gathered many religious leaders to pray for peace. For Sant'Egidio, that was again an invitation to take peace seriously, not just spiritually, not just individually, but for society as a whole. And when I think about society builders, you know, you invited me to this podcast for this. I, I, I think that we really need to take peace seriously. You know? We really need to engage with peace as a responsibility, not just something that might happen or should happen, but actually something that requires a certain level of creativity as the story that I shared with You know, it sounds like from the story that you're telling that the peace focus at San Egidio was not something that was intended at the start, so to speak. It's something that evolved organically as you started off really looking for, you know, protecting religious freedoms and a, a sequence of events first, you know, Pope John Paul II's uh, call. And then of course, later on the work in Mozambique, it took you on a journey where, where peacemaking became more of the focus for the organization. Totally, totally. I think you got it absolutely right, 100%. That's exactly how it is. Sant'Egidio is certainly not an organization that started as a peace organization. We were just concerned about living the gospel, acting on the gospel, loving others, serving others, living a life of prayer. That was Sant'Egidio, and this is still Sant'Egidio's effort. The peace work is really this response to life, you know, response to society, response to what you see. So for us, it's much, much more connected to serving the poor than expressing an intentionality on our own, right? So it's, it's much more somebody that sees somebody on the street that is in need of food or in need of shelter, and then you give the food and you give the shelter. So. Peace is almost, for us, a call as a need of humanity as a whole. And this is true in small communities, it's true in countries, it's true at the human level with everybody universally. Before we start talking about some of the other exciting peace initiatives you've done, Let's talk a little bit more about San Egidio. I think the audience will find this very fascinating. Tell us a little bit more around how the community is structured, how it's organized. You've, you've talked a little bit about the, the focus on improving the plight of the poor and the disenfranchised. Tell us more about what you do day to day around the world in these 70 plus countries that you're represented in. San Egidio is organized through small communities. Five people, 10 people, 100 people, 500 people, 1,000 people, small communities that live together, usually with similar age, similar life conditions. So you may have communities of Sant'Egidio in people in high school, or a community of Sant'Egidio in a nursing home, or a community of Sant'Egidio among immigrants. Usually, communities are created 
around some form of similarity, people in the same village, people in a university together, you know, and there is always the initiative of one, two, three, four people that come together and then they say, we want to do a community. And that created all sorts of surprises for us because, as I said, I joined the community when we were 30 kids and started my own community, you know, the, the community where I was right in high school and I started preaching when I was 14 years old. So for us, very young people can preach, women and men can preach, communities are clearly created by everybody. You have a very ecumenical dimension that I mentioned before, but we do have a structure and there are people responsible for the community, and then there is a hierarchy of these responsible people. You know, the, the person referred to somebody else, or that finally a report you know, to to the whole leadership. But what I find interesting is what I was mentioning before: is that Sant'Egidio threshold is at the same time very easy and very demanding, because to a certain extent, everybody can. Take the gospel and say, I can practice this word. I can put in practice this word that Jesus shared with us. But on the other, when you say nobody is so poor to help others, well, you, you are clearly calling your responsibility that is reversing all sorts of entitlement that moves beyond this, this notion of being somebody, you know, being important of what you're doing and so on and so forth. And rather there is a calling that is quite demanding in many ways, right? But this explains the vitality of Sant'Egilio. I remember vividly again when the first community outside Italy was born. And of all places was born in Germany because a group of university students came to Rome in pilgrimage, both Protestant and Catholic together. And they came to prayer once. And then they said, we would like to do this in Germany. And we said, well, of course, <laughs> do this in Germany. But then <laughs> we had to figure out what it meant, you know, to do Sant'Egidio in Germany. And uh, as you said before about peace, in many ways, Sant'Egidio kept discovering what life was asking, what life was offering, what life was encouraging us to serve. And so we became this incredibly diverse group of people that has hundreds of people in Ukraine and Russia at the same time. We have people in France and Germany at the same time, people in Spain, you know, but in Mozambique, we are now in hundreds of places. In Malawi, we are in hundreds of places. And in a small village, the logic is probably very similar to the Baha'i communities that you have somebody that is bringing life together as life would like to be. We do believe that in many ways, peace is not something that we build. You know, there is this language now based on Galton, prevention, peacemaking, peacekeeping, peace building, you know, the four stages that, that he identified. And there is a market, there is a huge investment at the UN level you know, about peace building. But our belief is, Actually, the reason there is no peace is because we are not in peace and we are not able to receive the peace that already is. So in a community, you usually twist, you restructure many of the logic that are operative in the world today 
where you have these responsibilities and go, we, we need to make peace. We need to make peace this way, or we need to impose peace, or we need to advocate for peace because they are not doing it and so on. But rather, the logic is to say, first, you need to pray. First, you need to calm down yourself. You need to allow peace to come to you. You need to allow peace, the space that peace requires for us to really experience so small communities are spaces where this may have. And interestingly enough, we do believe that, of course, we need to serve the poor and be with the disenfranchised. But there is always this attitude that even if you are very poor, you cannot be only poor or that you are not poor first. That if you are poor, it's because conditions, it's like somebody being sick. You know, you're not only sick. You're not sick. Sick is not the definition of your identity. You have many other things in addition to being sick, right? So poverty is not the defining characteristic of anybody. You can transcend that conditions by helping others, by praying, by finding the center of yourself, you know, serving life as life is and all this so strategy is an interesting, as I said, it's an interesting new development of the Catholic Church. And now it's clearly interreligious in a sense that committed to interreligious dialogue, very important connection to the Jewish world, the Muslim world, you know. I don't know exactly how many connections that have with the Baha'i, but probably we will find that at the local level in another occasion, like Bani at the UN, you know, we have connections. Amazing. Is there an educational program for your community? How is it that your local membership translates its goals and aspirations into the arena of action? How does that occur? How do they develop the skills they need for uh, those ambitions? So we don't have formal education processes. We rely on friendship as the venue and the conduit. Taking advantage also of this kind of communication, you are in Perth, I'm in New York, speaking as if we're in the same room. And now we can connect with a lot of people. But even in the past, when we didn't have internet, the logic was really old-fashioned. Christianity started in these long journeys that the disciples of Jesus did. Paul, Matthew, you know, Thomas, everybody travel quite significantly. And communities were born out of personal encounter. So what we believe is that rather than rely on the content of the transfer, this is the way you have to do it. These are the things that you need to learn. This is the thing that needs to be done and so on and so forth. What really counts is the friendship, is the sense of communion that whatever you are doing, you are doing in the name of and in communion with this larger family. Then, you know, to a certain extent, imagine that I come to you or you come to me and you say, you know, serve the poor, look around, look for somebody who is poor and start serving. It's a very simple invitation, right? But it's probably better than saying, if you do the elderly, you need to do this. If you do the foreigners, you need to do this. If you do the children, you need to do this. Right. Why do you want to overwhelm people with instructions and directions that they don't need if they are the one that needs to rediscover 
the beauty and creativity of serving. Now, what we do is to say, first start in friendship, then start praying, and then start serving. Friendship, prayer, and service, easily understood by anybody. And then what you do is simply, these are just three rules that you keep going deeper and deeper and deeper in understanding. So more than relying on formal education processes, we rely on the human capacity to rediscover the spiritual capacities that, you know, lead to friendship, prayer, and service. I know you also talk a lot about accompaniment, and this is a very popular idea as well within the Baha'i community. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about how accompaniment fits into, into the narrative here. Very nice. First of all, we feel that all of us have been accompanied. And have been accompanied because we have been welcomed first. So the community is this beautiful human space in which you are welcome first. And this, this was true when I joined and we were 30. It's true in Malawi where there are other 30 that are welcoming others and so on. So first the realization that you're not alone in the world, that loneliness is an illness of sorts. If you are alone, something is not working as it should be. That uh, communion in the human experience is actually fundamental. And therefore, accompaniment becomes this experience of shedding light together, discovering that if you are together, this surprising revelation, you know, opening of life is much better understood. So you, you capture perfectly how this peace vocation came about. But that was exactly because we were speaking with Jaime Gonzalez, because we were welcoming him, we were listening to him, we were asking questions to him, we were open to say, but if you do this, then we could do that. What about these other things? Oh, do you remember? And this is also beautiful about accompaniment, right? Because the moment you said to me, I did a podcast with Peter Coleman, you reminded me of 30 years of friendship with Peter Coleman. Right, so suddenly, <laughs> suddenly you are not just Dwayne. Right? I never met you before, but suddenly you are a friend of Peter. Right, <laughs> so there is there is an interesting gift in accompaniment that enriches our lives tremendously, because those who accompany are not guiding; those who are accompanying are not imposing. Those who are accompanying are not oppressed. So true, so true. Those, so true. those who are accompanying are really accompanying. They, they are the space we need to be who we are. They are the presence we need to be who we are. So what we saw over and over again with the elderly, with the immigrants, with the kids, really with everybody, that accompaniment is fundamentally transformed. And of course, it transforms both. It transforms the world that is accompanied, but also the one that accompanies, right? There is a very strong mutual bond in accompaniment. Beautiful.
And, and you spoke earlier also about reflection. Tell us a little bit more about how reflection has intersected with this journey. So Santegidio, as I said, relies on three pillars. Friendship, prayer, and service. And all of them have reflection moments. So on the friendship side, there are regular meetings. The regular actual meetings of the community. There is a, a speech, a reflection, something that is offered to the community. And then everybody shares his own, her own reaction, reflections, and so on. So it's really a sharing of the community that gathers together. That is very frequently when needed or different ways, a personal speech with somebody that is accompanying you. And then the prayer is very often this reflective moment of your days, your week, your entire life. But even the service is always accompanied by a small meeting of those who are serving and are asking questions like, are we doing well? Is anything new? Should we do something differently? And, and so on and so forth. So all three moments of friendship, prayer, and service have built in this reflective moment. I think that, again, this is interesting in relation to the society, right? We are, we are engaging on this theme of society building. And I think it's very important because in society, very often, the reflections are difficult because any form of emphasis and endorsement or any form of criticism is perceived as polarizing and dividing. So if I am right, right. endorsing this, if I am endorsing this, I am against that. If I am right, criticizing right. this, doing it in a hostile way and so on and so forth. But we actually say this is ridiculous because reflections is what you need to do every day. You need to do it with your friends. You need to do it in a climate as somebody that is trying to learn. You know, you cannot learn if you don't see your mistakes. You cannot learn if you don't understand the problem that you need to address. And the attitude should be honesty on one side and hope on the other. But in reality, very often the, 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 the climate, the cultural climate around us is always hostility, hostility, hostility. And so reflection becomes almost impossible in the public sphere, right? And this is why I think that experiences like Sant'Egidio, like the Baha'i community are so precious, or probably any form of authentic community is so precious, because you need to have these reflective moments. And in order to have the reflective moments, you need to have the community. If you don't have the community, if you don't have somebody that right. is like, oh, right. probably point. It's very difficult to do. So thank you so much for the background with Sanajidio. Let's let's go back to Mozambique. This was a turning point for your community. Suddenly you were thrust into the peace sphere. Suddenly you had a success that was, I mean, really monumental, you know, bringing peace to a civil war to a nation. That's not, that's not an e easy achievement. That was just a massive seismic event. And that led to your community really becoming a peace broker globally, regularly hosting these summits at the Vatican, bringing you know, warring nations, warring people, warring communities together, charting paths going forward. 
you know, and, and your, your journey from there has been so amazing. You know, Guatemala, Algeria, Kosovo, Burundi, Democratic Republic of the Congo, you know, I mean, it's just on and on. It's just such an incredible story. What have you learned? I mean, reflection is a big part of what you do across all these different peacekeeping initiatives. Now, going all the way back to Mozambique, what have you learned? What are the big insights that you walk away with? Well, one is clearly that you need to talk with everybody and you need to be open to speak with people with whom many do not want to talk. So there is a very significant ethical moral dilemma there because in order to do peace, you need to work with those who are doing war. Doing peace in a way is an accompaniment to those who are actually doing terrible things that have done terrible things. So there is a significant tension. And I think that it's very important to not underestimate this complexity because to speak too easily about peace is dangerous because you can be killed, you know. It's, it's not a great it's not point. A, great point. Uh, no. Gandhi was not, you know, leaving Martin Luther King and the Sadat and so on. And very often are your own that are killing you. It's, right. it's not the enemy, it's, it's the one within that is killing you. But also because, as I said, you know, the, the moral dilemma of, of giving a way out to people that many others would like to see in jail, you know, would like to see punished for what they did and so on. So I think that this is really a learning that is bringing us together. But at the same time, as I said, it's this commitment to speaking with everybody and listening to everybody, understanding why people are doing what they are doing, understanding their own reasoning, understanding the good that is there available to them and so on. The other thing is this, I mentioned that there is no exit strategy, that the same accompaniment that we would offer to somebody who is a child until he's, he's late in life is true for countries. You know, there, there is this expression of the exit strategy. We went the other day to see the Secretary General of the UN, Guterres, and, you know, the president of Sant'Egidio was explaining that Sant'Egidio doesn't have an exit strategy, that we don't, we don't exit. You know, we, we are not out of a crisis because we are not able to do X, Y, and Z in six months. The strategy is to be in a country when the country is needed, you know, to stay with the crisis over time and so on. And Guterres was extraordinarily responsive with that. I really stressed the importance of that attitude. It's the long term. You know, when you mentioned at the beginning that the Baha'i decided to have the next 25 years you know, dedicated to this building. It's very unusual for people to give each other 25 years, right? You know, we are much more used to these 20 minutes, you know, this 20 second kind of, of increments. You know, the idea of 25 years seems to be so out of the ordinary. But in this sense, and the GDO is very much in sync with that logic. And in this sense, it's also very Catholic. The Catholic Church has been around for 2,000 years and has seen changes over time that many other organizations didn't see the same way. One thing that is interesting for me in that sense is, is actually this gift of America, because I came here, as I said, in 92. I learned English. I didn't learn English at that point. 
I started working in academia and now I am engaging with this soccer university of America. It's a new chapter for me because this is clearly a Buddhist organization and we are doing an institute called the Soka Institute for Global Solution. And in that sense, it's this effort of saying, how can we address the problems that we are not even able to describe or to get our head around, especially the problems that are human-made? You know, because humans clearly are creating problems of extraordinary magnitude that were not there before humans took hold of the planet. And so... It is required a different kind of reasoning to understand them in the first place. And self-reflection at the human level is very complicated, very different, and so on. So it may very well be that we will engage with the Baha'i to try to figure out this kind of complex. That sounds wonderful. That sounds great. You know, we've talked about peace at a kind of national level, you know, like civil wars and I mean, very big, big communities that we're talking about there. But of course, the challenge happens even at an interpersonal level, you know, this idea of people who are antagonistic being able to find a path to come closer together. So when you translate it down to the personal level, what insights have you learned there around what is successful? in helping bridge the gap between antagonistic peoples? I would say that the presence and services of friends, people in between, people that are able to listen to both, people that are able to speak with both, is extraordinary. You know, I always remember Dot Mitchell explaining the peace process in, uh, in Ireland and saying, I never had everybody together in the same room. I never had a meeting and everybody that was involved in the peace process was physically present in this. I was able to speak with everybody, but not everybody was able to speak with everybody. So everybody needed Mitchell, but not everybody was able to go beyond the animosity, the hostility, the pain, the suffering of what the conflict meant to them. So in this sense, I really think that it's very important for us to truly reflect on the need for millions and millions of friends that are able to stay in between, that are able to encounter, listen, appreciate, respect people that would not be able to do the same with their enemies. Because the intermediary, the friend, can do exactly this work. If you are in a, a situation in India between Hindu and Muslims, or if you are able to be friends with both, you know, you may discover and listen to dimensions that would be otherwise just extraordinarily difficult to capture if you are speaking directly with your enemy. And the second element is that the friend opens up everybody to the creativity of the spirit. So back to the logic that I was trying to address before. The logic is to say, peace is already there. It is us that needs to go there. It is us that needs to let peace come in. So rather than thinking, oh, 
the Hindu needs to change this, and this is the, what the Muslim needs to change. And this is how the Hindu needs to speak with the Muslim. You know, this is how the Muslim needs to speak with the Hindu, and so on and so forth. The logic of the friend is that the more polarized the conflict is, the more entrenched the positions are between Russians and Ukraine these days. The more you need to be able to be a presence that is present to both and allows for those little moments of the spirit in which the spirit speaks to everyone in the conflict, you know, to the Russians, to the Ukrainians, to the intermediaries, to the friends, and so on. I would say that these are the two important things, you know, to have really this role of the friends, friends of everybody in the system, but also this reliance on friendship as the space through which the spirit speaks and guides the way in these difficult, very narrow paths. Wow, that's amazing. It's very inspiring. Any other advice that you have for the Baha'i community? So this Baha'i community, of course, is embarking on this journey. It's an exciting journey. What, what advice would you have for the community? Again, visualize grassroots communities, very similar to what you've been talking about with San Egidio. You know, communities in the highlands in Papua New Guinea and the Democratic Republic of the Congo, you know, visualize these communities all over the planet trying to put this idea of helping bring antagonistic groups together. What advice would you have for that community? Well, once I would say continue to be welcoming. I think it's beautiful to have a community. It's a great gift to be in a community. It is a great gift to the community when you can welcome someone. So be welcoming and that's important thing. The second one is be caring for the poor. You know, the poor are actually speaking of what is needed by humanity as a whole. I think that the poor will lead us to really do the important thing, the change of that, is, that is needed. And third, I would say, don't be shy in speaking with the powerful, because the powerful may be willing to listen to you and guide large group of people you know, towards the path of the good for all. I think that we all need to spend more time in articulating what is good for everyone. Not just for me, not just for my community, but for everyone. And so articulating the good of all is going to be a big challenge for all of us. And I really hope that the Baha'i will continue to do this. Wow. How amazing was that? I think you'll join me in feeling incredibly grateful and privileged for having had the opportunity to learn from a person with Andrea's experience in global peacekeeping. And I loved his lessons on the role of reflection and on accompaniment. And in particular, I love these themes because they're both central themes to approaches which Baha'is are really working to implement all over the world. So thanks again, Andrea, for an amazing episode. And in our next episode, we'll continue our journey exploring the science of depolarization. So thanks again for joining the conversation for social transformation. I look forward to continuing our dialogue. That's next time on Society Builders. 
Society builders paved the way to a better world, to a better day. A united approach to building a new society. There's a crisis facing humanity. People suffer from a lack of unity. It's time for a better path to a new society. Join a conversation for social transformation. Society builders. Join a conversation for social transformation. Society builders. So engage with the local communities and explore the exciting possibilities. We can elevate the atmosphere in which we move. The paradigm is shifting. It's so very uplifting. It's a new beat, a new song, a brand new groove. Join a conversation for social transformation. Society builders. For social transformation, society builders. The Baha'i faith has a lot to say, helping people discover a better way with discourse and social action framed by unity. Now the time has come to lift the game and apply the teachings of the greatest name and rise to meet the glory of our destiny. Join a conversation for social transformation. Society builders. Join a conversation for social transformation. Society builders.